kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 9. Acts 16, beginning in verse 6. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. In our last study, we saw the formal beginning and earliest stages of Paul's second missionary journey. In the first journey, he traveled with Barnabas to Cyprus, and then through the region of Galatia, establishing churches in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, as well as a few other places. Now they have visited the churches in Derbe and Lystra and have added Timothy to their company and prepared him for the ministry. So picking up in Acts 16, verse 6, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia, and after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. There's a great deal to say about these passages. At that time, there were two regions called Galatia, often differentiated as North Galatia and South Galatia. Some believe this trip carried Paul and company through North Galatia, passing through the cities of Ancyra, Tavium, and Pisinius and that he later wrote his epistle to the churches that he established here. Of course, we have suggested that Paul wrote his epistle to the churches he established on the first missionary journey, and that it was sent out even before the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15. By my reckoning, the best way to track their journey is that leaving Lystra with Timothy, they came to the region between Galatic Lycaonia and Galatic Phrygia, So it might be better to render the phrase in verse 6, the region that is both Phrygia and Galatia, where they could visit the churches in Iconium and in Pisidian Antioch before embarking on the next stage of the work in conquering the world for Jesus Christ. But where should they go? Paul's regular approach up to this point has been to enter communities through the Jewish population and reach the Gentiles by way of the God-fearers who attended the synagogues. Remember that this trip seems to have been Paul's idea, not the result of a vision or a revelation of the Spirit. What he had first purposed to do, namely, to visit the churches he established on the first journey, was now done. So he determines to go forward into the region of Asia Minor, where they could labor in some major cities with large Jewish populations like Thyatira, Smyrna, Sardis, and Ephesus, but they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. In Acts chapter 8, we saw Philip called away from his ministry in Samaria by an angel, and then translated by the Spirit from the scene where he had baptized the eunuch. In Acts 10, we saw an angel 
a vision from God and a revelation of the Spirit direct Cornelius to Peter and Peter to Cornelius. Then in Acts 13, we saw the Spirit speak to or through the prophets in the church in Syrian Antioch to bring about the first missionary journey. We've seen moves of God's people that were motivated by fear, by passion, by planning, and by love. And then on these occasions, we have seen God's people moved or stopped or otherwise directed by God himself in an extraordinary and miraculous way. Are both of these forms of working and living normative for the Christian life? I do not think this is a question that can properly be answered by experience. I know many good and honest people who seem to truly love Jesus and trust the Bible, who claim that God has led them in ways just as miraculous as anything we have read in Acts. I do not think they're lying, but they could be mistaken. And I cannot base my faith on their experiences or their interpretations of them. God gave his word to all men to reveal all truth. Everything must be tested and interpreted by the Bible. With that approach, I do not find miraculous leading to be normative. I do not find it to be the regular method of God in directing his children, even when they are engaged in important works for his glory. On every occasion in Acts when this kind of remarkable guidance is recorded, there is a common theme binding each of the events together. They always relate to the special purpose of God in fully inaugurating the global conquest of the world for his kingdom. And this involved more than just the global outreach of preachers. It involved, first and foremost, the global outreach of the apostles themselves to lay the foundation of Christ upon which the church was to be built throughout time. There were only a few apostles, and they would only live for so long, so it was imperative that their steps be carefully directed in the most expeditious and efficient way. This was the purpose of the Spirit's direct and miraculous intervention and guidance. We're not entirely sure how he forbade them from entering Asia to preach the word. It might have been by a vision or a revelation. But it was evidently some method clear enough to be sure that it was the Holy Spirit doing the leading. However, it appears that the Spirit did not tell Paul where he should go instead. And after they had come to Mycenae, that is, the territory on the northeastern border of Asia, indicating that they skirted the northernmost part of that region, as the Spirit directed them. They tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Now, in the better manuscripts, the passage says the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. This is the only time that expression appears in Scripture, and it is noteworthy. First, we have the Holy Spirit in verse 6, then the Spirit of Jesus in verse 7, and finally, God in verse 9. Again, that's in the older manuscripts. The Textus Receptus in verse 9 says, The Lord. Thus, the older manuscripts have a profoundly Trinitarian presentation of God in this text. But we should be equally careful not to make a hard distinction between the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here as though they're taking turns in who gets involved, just as we should not conflate them into a single person. Most likely the term the Spirit of Christ, which is said is only used in this place, is a Christian equivalent to the Old Testament expression the Spirit of Yahweh. 
And it emphasizes that Jesus occupies the same place in relation to his church that Yahweh did in relation to the affairs of Israel. Indeed, Jesus is Yahweh. Luke affirms that the Holy Spirit is at work, but he reminds us that his work is to bring about the will of King Jesus, who is reigning for the glory of God the Father. Why did the Spirit not allow them to visit Asia and Bithynia? Certainly, it was God's intention that those territories should be evangelized. In fact, Paul himself will eventually labor in various parts of Asia, and Peter would either establish or at least work with churches in Bithynia, according to 1 Peter 1 and verse 1. But both of those territories were almost certainly chosen by Paul because of their large Jewish populations, and God had different intentions for the focus of Paul's ministry at this point. Verse 8, So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Troas, properly called Alexandria Troas in honor of Alexander the Great, was a bustling seaport where ships were ever-present to ferry goods and persons across the Aegean Sea. And although Luke does not mention any preaching here or any work that Paul and company did at this time, there was a congregation here when Paul returned in Acts chapter 20. Furthermore, it appears that Luke himself was here on this occasion and joined Paul's traveling party while they were in the city. Because in the next verse, we have the first of a series of three sections in Acts called the We Sections, where the narrator switches from the third person, they, to the first person plural, we, showing that he has entered the narrative himself. This, of course, is very subtle and unostentatious. Luke never records his own name, nor does he offer any autobiographical details, and this has led commentators and readers to speculate, sometimes wildly, as to who he was and how and when he joined the party and what brought him to Troas. We will not take time to consider the strengths and weaknesses of the various ideas, but I will offer the one that is most reasonable to me. There is a very early tradition that Luke was a native of Syrian Antioch. In fact, in the Western text, Acts 11.28 reads differently and is actually the first we text, which, if accurate, would place Luke in Antioch during the time when Paul and Barnabas were laboring there. The fact that Luke will later say that God has called us to preach, including himself, shows that he was an evangelist and not merely a physician, and we presume that he was a rather experienced evangelist because we've recently seen that Paul was very judicious and discriminatory in regard to who he would take along with him on his labors, and later Paul will write a letter and describe Luke as famous for the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8.18. So it's been suggested by some that Luke himself established the church in Troas and was laboring here and having great success, so much so that it impressed Paul to the point of calling him into his party. Later, Paul says that he came back to Troas to preach the gospel, 2 Corinthians 2.12, but that does not preclude a congregation already having been established there, according to Romans 1.15. Whether Paul knew that Luke was here and chose Troas for that purpose after being deterred from the other options, or whether the Spirit knew and led Paul here for that reason and to his surprise, the text does not reveal. 
But once they arrived in the city, they did not have much time to work among the disciples there or the other citizens, so it seems, before the Spirit came again with another message. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. There seems to be a distinction between this and the earlier cases of divine communication Luke mentions in this section. In those cases, it was evidently very clear that the Holy Spirit spoke and what his revelation meant for the company. In this case, it appears that God chose a method that required more deliberation, analysis, and discussion on the parts of Paul and his associates. First, to determine if this was merely a dream or if it was a message from God. And second, what exactly God was calling them to do. As Paul described the vision to his friends, they determined, perhaps from the man's appearance or dress or his language, that the man Paul had seen in his dream was a Macedonian. Macedonia had been conquered by the Romans in 146 B.C., but in earlier centuries it was the place from which Alexander the Great sprang forth to conquer the world. Essentially, a Macedonian was a Greek, and the Greeks, though they had given way to the Romans in regard to military and political might, were the cultural leaders of the world. The society which had developed on that South European archipelago gave birth to some of the most meaningful developments in philosophy, government, science, mathematics, the arts, military genius, and human communication. But all of the brilliance of the earlier ages was wasted on the ignorance of paganism and the decadence of perversion that seemed to enslave the people there as a whole. It is very interesting and frankly very beautiful that the Greek man in Paul's vision would describe the evangelization of his homeland as Paul coming over to help the people there. Christianity only improves every life, every community, every nation, every discipline, and every space that it touches. Wherever Jesus reigns, the curse begins to fail, and the world is restored once more to very good according to the perfect will of God. Later, it was Christian thinkers who would take the intellectual and social treasures of Greece and transform them into instruments of justice, equality, and prosperity for the good of the world. The best that mankind can accomplish is ultimately corrupt and impotent without the influences of Christ on it. On the other hand, Christianity can take the knowledge that made the atomic bomb and annihilated the lives of thousands and use it for the eradication of disease and hunger and the improvement of the lives of millions. Marriages need the help of Christianity. Parents need the help of Christianity. Children need the help of Christianity. But not only that, academics needs the help of Christianity. Natural science needs the help of Christianity. The arts need the help of Christianity. Industry needs the help of Christianity. Psychology and philosophy need the help of Christianity. And what Christianity cannot help, it is destined to obliterate as the old system gives way to the new heaven and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. 
We're not talking about the spread of Western civilization. We're talking about the conquest of all civilization, Western, Eastern, Northern, or Southern, by the Lord Jesus Christ, and the utter transformation of the human race into all that God intends it to be. This is the ultimate end of the gospel being injected into this world. And this is the reason that what began in Eden as the dominion mandate to fill the earth with God's image bearers and to subdue and study and utilize the undercreation for God's glory and unto the global promotion of his knowledge and majesty will only be truly accomplished through the Christian mandate to go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus of all the nations. This move into Macedonia, then, would represent not merely growth for the church or expansion further into the Gentile world. It was a strategic move into the heart of human accomplishment and brilliance intended to set in motion a divinely ordained chain reaction predicted thousands of years earlier by Noah in Genesis 9, 24-27, in which those who God had blessed through history with the possession and propagation of religious truth, would meet and overtake those who God had blessed through history with the possession and propagation of human genius for the furtherance of God's eternal purpose. This, I would suggest, accounts for the extraordinary intervention of God in directing this portion of Paul's journey. Yet it is true that in a very real sense, the Macedonian call— resounds from every nation throughout time. All that is the riches of humankind is languishing under the curse and fumbling in the darkness and delusion of sin. Let God's people feel the burden to come over and help wherever there are men and women needing to learn because it is through the help of those whom he has helped that God has appointed to fill the earth with his knowledge and glory, like the waters that cover the sea. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians, of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless, and have a great week. From all the dark places of earth, heathen races, Oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. 
With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.